You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Genesis 18, we'll begin reading with verse 16, read through the end of the chapter. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the, for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes, suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose forty are found there. He answered, for the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Heavenly Father, Lord, we require Your grace this morning if we're to profit from this reading of Your holy and sacred Word. And we look to You, O Father, that You would be pleased, O Father, to bless us as we uh, seek to understand these things, Father, as we seek to apply these things. We ask, O Father, for Your grace to change us, to shape us, mold us, make us more like Your Son, that You would work through Your Word, Father that we'd be more than just hearers, that we would come to it with more than just a, a, a bear or a mere curiosity, but that we would come to it hungry and thirsty for change in our hearts. Reveal things, reveal that which is necessary. Encourage where encouragement is needed, Father. Give and meet each one of us where we are, Father, that, Lord, we, we may find ourselves eternally uh, profiting from this. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. <clears throat> By far, my, my, as, as you all know, my favorite way to preach is to take a, 
uh, a book or a letter or uh, what have you of, the, of, of Scripture and just start at the beginning and work the way through. By far, you cover more ground that way, uh, taking Genesis and starting and just going chapter by chapter. Uh, we can cover far more ground. We're called to preach the whole counsel of God, and, and I, I believe this is the best way to go about it. Not to say that topical preaching is not uh, useful, it's, it has its place as well. It's one of the tools in the toolbox. But for your everyday, um, uh, for the everyday work, uh, preaching through the books is by far, uh, I think, the best way to go because there's a wonderful, uh, there's, there's just a wonderful balance in the teaching of Scripture that the Holy Spirit has put there. And I'm always amazed by how. Uh, you'll come to a certain chapter and there'll be a subject in that chapter that just happens to speak to somebody. It's just absolutely amazing how that works. Uh, I, I could never do that uh, on my own. So I'm thankful for that. But all of this having been said, there also is a little bit of a, a danger I want to point out to you. Not necessarily a danger, but there's something we need to safeguard against here. Is that as we take these various pericopes, uh, a pericope simply just being a text that has one coherent thought in it, uh, or maybe uh, a couple of coherent thoughts. As we take these and we focus so intensely on them as we do, we have a tendency to, if we could imagine the Bible being a yardstick, we have a tendency to focus on a quarter of an inch. We're focusing on a quarter of an inch, and then next week we focus on, on you know, half an inch. Then the next week, we, 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 we just move down the ruler this way, and we can be looking at Scripture like this. It's, it's important from time to time that we stand back, if you will, and we look, take a look at the entire yardstick here. Now, it's not my intention this morning so much to take a look at the entire yardstick as it is maybe to take a look at where have we been. There's a flow of thought here that is really, really important, that actually I think can be concealed by our subheadings that we have. Keep in mind, most of you probably have a subheading over Genesis 17. It'll say something about Abraham and circumcision. You'll have a subheading maybe over verse 15 of chapter 17. It will say something like Isaac's birth promised. Um, chapter 18, verse 22, you'll have Abraham's intercession for Sodom perhaps. I'm not saying that these aren't helpful. They are helpful. Believe me, when you're preparing for a presbytery exam, uh, it's, I haven't done this, I don't think, since then, but you can leaf through and look at those subheadings and get an idea of the order of, of, of uh, thought there because in your presbytery exam, someone could call upon you and say, give me an outline of Genesis. Okay, well, you have to practice that uh, to be able to do that. Uh, so they're helpful. They help us see Rather than having just a, a Bible with just, you know, with no subheadings in it, they help us to see it. But they also blur some things. I want to show you what they blur. In Genesis 17, at the very, at, uh, over verse 1, you probably have something that says Abraham and, and circumcision or Abraham and the covenant of circumcision, depending. The translations will vary just a little bit. But, and when we get to chapter 17, we have a tendency to think of circumcision and I, as you well know, even went on kind of a mini-series on the sacraments when we got there, um, making, just taking advantage of the fact that here we have the sacraments being introduced, so let's do a little mini-series 
on the sacraments, giving us a little bit of a break of studying Genesis. But it's important that we come back to this and see, is, is, this, is, the, is it the Holy Spirit's intention to take our minds away from Abraham and Sarah and the promise of a son to focus just on circumcision in this chapter? I'm going to answer absolutely positively not. But if we don't take a minute and do exactly what we're doing right now, we could be left with that impression and think that we have really come to understand Genesis 17. And here we, we, we will have already embarked on a lot of, a, a number of really important things. Is it important for us to understand circumcision? Yes. Is it important for us to understand the connections between circumcision and baptism? Absolutely. Is it important for us to understand the sacraments? Absolutely. These things are all important. We've done those. We've set them aside. Let's come back to Genesis. What is going on here? What is going on here is by the time we get to Genesis 17, there is an incredible amount of tension building here. Sarah and Abraham were called 25 years ago. It's been 25 years since they were called out of pagan idolatry, called into the light, into God's light. He calls them to himself. He makes promises. You're going to, you, you look at the stars, Abraham. If you can count the stars, so you'll be able to count your descendants. Kings are going to come from you. Through you, all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed. 25 years ago, these promises were made to Abraham. They've been made on numerous occasions since. But here Abraham is now. He's no longer a 75-year-old man. He's now nearly 100 years old. He still has no son. Sarah is no longer 65. She is now 90. She has no, no longer has a son. So we have that tension here. What is Genesis 17 about? Genesis 17 covers circumcision for sure, but Genesis 17 is about the Lord coming to Abraham and saying, Abraham, the time has come. The time is here. If you, if you look, and, and, and Abraham, what is it? Abraham, how does he think this thing is going to work out? Abraham, he really believes that Ishmael is the promised son, doesn't he? As we study this chapter, you know, Abraham, he, he's, you know, in, in, in verse, what is it, verse 18, Abraham says to the Lord, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, Abraham really is falsely believing, it seems from this text, that Ishmael is the promised son. But God says in verse 19, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you'll call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And then if you look down to verse 21, he says, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. I'm going to submit to you that that is what's going on in Genesis 17. The circumcision... Circumcision is given to Abraham to strengthen him for this. It's a sacrament given to strengthen him for this. But the focus here really is God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. 
We might look at that kind of quickly and we might, we might think to ourselves, okay, now Abraham's got to wait one more year to see the fulfillment of this promise. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Changes are soon going to be happening to Sarah's body. Right, ladies? <laughs> oh, yeah. He's not going to have to wait a year to see to begin seeing the fulfillment of this promise. The time is here. Now, when we come to Genesis 18, a lot of times we focus on hospitality. You know, in verse 1, the Lord appears to Abraham. We see that very clearly. And as I, as I tried to develop last week, the reader knows this, but I don't think Abraham does. Not until about verses 9 or 10. And we know, okay, there are three visitors who show up. We know one of them is the Lord from chapter 19, which we haven't got to yet. We know two of them are angels. Two angels and the Lord, who uh, I believe the Lord being the uh, pre-incarnate, uh, uh, the Son of God in pre-incarnate form appearing to, uh, to uh, Abraham here. And Abraham, of course, he offers that, that famous uh, Oriental hospitality, and a lot of times we can get caught up in the subject of hospitality here, focusing on Abraham and the hospitality, and I would submit to you that we're going to miss the boat again. Why? Because God has come to Abraham to strengthen him, to tell him that the promise is here. It's coming. And in chapter 18, he's doing the same thing for Sarah. He does it so brilliantly, so wonderfully, he has this discussion with Abraham, knowing that Sarah is within earshot, and he announces that this time next year, verse 10, I'll return to you, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And we're told that Sarah's listening at the, the tent door behind him. And what happens? What's Sarah do? In verse 12 of chapter 18, uh, she laughs to herself. She doesn't make a peep. She doesn't make a sound. She just laughs to herself and says, now that I'm old and I'm wore out, and my, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And, the, and, of course, the Lord knows our thoughts, doesn't he? And the Lord is still speaking to Abraham, knowing that Sarah can hear. Now, what's the Lord doing? He's got a little more work to do in Sarah's heart, too, before he brings this promise. A little more work to do in Sarah's heart before he brings this promise. And it, what's amazing here, is do you see how our Lord works with us in the midst of our unbelief and in the midst of our weakness? He's going, to, he's going to reveal this thing to Sarah, but the way he's going about it, she's back uh, presumably uh, behind a, a cloth or something where she can't be seen, some compartment in a tent where she can't be, be seen, and there the Lord uh, calls her and says, why? He says to Abraham in her earshot, why did Sarah laugh and say, I, I, shall I indeed bear a child? Uh, he says in verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah's hearing all this, and then Sarah speaks up. Sarah denies it. Well, she's scared. She's trembling. All the Lord says to her, He says, no, no, you... No, you, 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 you did it. You did it, Sarah. Now, what's going to happen? Is Sarah going to have to wait a year for this promise? No. Let's think about this for a moment. She's called on her unbelief. And in a very short period of time, 
she is going to be noticing changes in her body. She's going to go to Abraham. And she's going to go, I don't know if it would be wise for her to say, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> I don't think that would be wise to say, but it might be something that would blurt out. I don't know how to say it in Hebrew. I don't know what that would sound like. But you're not going to believe this. Abraham, I'm pregnant. That's what's going on here, you see. That's what's going on here. And we don't have a subheading over verse 16 of chapter 18, but clearly we have another pericope. We have another, we have another scene that's taking place over verse 16. And you see, sometimes we, this, all, this whole flow of argument can get lost here. Over verse 16... We read, then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. Now, who are the men? Again, this is the Lord and two angels. They appear to Abraham as, as men. The men uh, set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And um, obviously, with their, their body language looking towards Sodom, it's easy to conclude that they've got some business with the city of Sodom. And Abraham, we're told, went with them, the end of verse 16, to set them on their way. Now, there's a lot of, there's something we need to understand as we go down through verses 16 on to the end of the chapter. There's one thing we've got to keep in mind here, or we're going we're gonna to stumble. Chap, verses 16 and onward are full of what we call anthropomorphic language. It's full of anthropomorphic language or full of anthropomorphism. That's a real fancy word. You've heard me use it before. What does it mean? Well, the Greek word for man or humanity is anthropos. Anthropos. And anthropomorphic language is when human traits and human attributes are applied to something that otherwise would not have human attributes. For example, when the Lord says with an outstretched arm, I'm going to accomplish uh, XXX, uh, the, the Lord is a is spirit. Does he actually have an arm? Uh, no, but it's, it's an anthropomorphism. He's speaking in human language to convey that with power, God is going to accomplish whatever he is setting to accomplish. And that's what we have happening here. Uh, Abraham, he is still the host here. He is accompanying, uh, he's accompanying his visitors, the Lord and these two angels. Uh, we're told that he went with them to set them on their way. They don't need Abraham to set them on their way. But I think that if we put ourselves in Abraham's shoes here, would you really want them to leave? And if it was obvious that they were leaving, wouldn't you want to follow them? I mean, wouldn't you want to see, what, what, what are they, okay, where are they going? What are they doing? You're going towards Sodom. You'd follow them as far and as long as you could, wouldn't you? I think that's what's going on. And then verse 17, the Lord said, and I, I presume he's saying this to the, uh, the two angels that are with him. He said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do. Now, again, anthropomorphic language. Is the Lord kind of deliberating? Is he like, man, I just haven't made up my mind. I mean, what do you think? Do you think I ought to share it with them or not? What do you, 
you, you guys, you know, it, 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 is he like, does he need to call people to his, society, you know, to his side and seek the benefit of counselors to make up his mind? The answer is no. So then what's he doing? Is he like one of those conversationists that like they, they want to let you know that they know something you don't know, so they tell you something, then they can't tell you the rest? And No. That's absolutely irritating. No. Well, what other possibility is there? Well, here's, here's what's going on here without a shadow of a doubt. The Lord is pulling Abraham in. Imagine walking with the Lord and these angels and the Lord saying, hey, shall I hide from Abraham what we're about to do? What would that do to you? You're going to be going, what is it that you're about to do? Can you feel how that would draw you in? How that would pull you in? He's pulling Abraham in. Now, verses 17, 18, and 19 need to be taken all together. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Here he is, reiterating those promises. Reiterating those promises. And if there's a message here, and, and the first point I really want to make is God's promises are certain. Even if they're delayed, they are certain. You see how the Lord's speaking about these promises? Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? This is a done deal in the mind of the Lord. Of course it's a done deal. But you see, it was a done deal in the mind of the Lord 25 years ago. That the Lord is going to come back in judgment, that the Lord is going to consummate and bring in and usher in a new heavens and a new earth is a done deal to the Lord. But he's working with a bunch of children like us who are weak and frail, like Abraham and Sarah. But what we learn from this text is God's promises are certain even if they should be delayed. And there's a second lesson in here that I got from Calvin. Cal, John Calvin is, he, I like reading him because he has such an uncanny ability to not only exegete Scripture, but also to exegete the human heart. You learn so much about your own heart when you read him. Even though it was written so many years ago, you, you read him and it's like reading, a, it's like looking in a mirror sometimes. But what Calvin says about these passages, he says this, he says, this, he says something like this. He says, look, look how the Lord continually blesses his people. It's like the Lord blesses his children and then he just can't help himself but to continually shower blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. How, how is it that God can, can see that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? How is it that God can see that? Because God is going to do that. How is it that he can see that next time this year, Abraham's going to have a son because God's going to give him one? How is it that he can say to Sarah that next year, this time, you're going to have a child because God's going to give her one? How can he say that the descendants will be as numerous as the stars in this, in the sky because God knows each one of them by their names? If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you're one of those stars. And he knows you by name. And he starts out just like he did with Abraham and Sarah, 
calling them out of pagan idolatry. What's he call us out of? Pagan idolatry. Pagan idolatry is all around us. He calls us out of pagan idolatry, calls us into the light, and then he shares blessing with us after blessing, after blessing, after blessing. And he does that. He's doing that now. He does that every day. Now, we wouldn't always count all these things as blessings. Oftentimes, it's not until after we've gone through them and we say, wow, that was quite a blessing. Let's think about Abraham's life here for a minute. He's called out of Ur, called out of Haran, called down into the land of Canaan. When he, when he, he has to leave, sure, it's a blessing to be called by the Lord. But what does Abraham have to do to obey that call? He has to leave his father's house. He has to leave his homeland. He has to bark on a journey where he's not really sure where he's going. That's not easy. He no sooner gets down into Canaan and what happens? Places, there's a, there's a famine. He's very young in his faith. He takes things in his own hands. He ends up down in Egypt. Sarah ends up married off to Pharaoh. That don't sound like a blessing. That would be horrible. But it's only in the midst of that, that serious trial where God's able to bless him by showing him his power. God delivers him out of there. God delivers her out of there. They get thrown out of Egypt. I bet they were never happier than to be thrown out of Egypt. But they get thrown out of Egypt. So they're rejoicing. Look at this. We could have never seen the power of the Lord if it wasn't for this. And they get up, they get up into, you know, in Genesis 13, they get, they get back up in the land of Canaan, and now their flocks, they've been blessed so much that the land can't support them, and Abraham has to separate with Lot. And Lot goes down and encamps near uh, Sodom, and, and Abraham, he, has to, he encamps near the Oaks of Mamre, as I talked about last week, and we can continue on and on and on. Lot gets in trouble, Abraham has to go up against Kedar Lahomer. All of these things are trials, but nevertheless, these trials are blessings, you know, I, I had a, a very painful experience in the last 10 days myself. And I, I got I, I to tell you, from studying all of this, I, I decided through that experience, I'm like, you know something? I'll I, I tell you what, Lord, you must have some reason for this happening. I don't know what that is, but I want to know what it is because I can see very clearly that it's a blessing. And you want to know what the blessing is? It's a, it's a painful blessing, but the blessing is this. A lot of times these things happen in our hearts, happen in our lives, so that the Lord, just as He's revealing to Sarah some things about her heart that are uncomfortable and humiliating for her to deal with, sometimes He comes to us that way and He wants to reveal things about our own hearts that are uncomfortable and humiliating to deal with. And I will tell you, yours truly got His very recently. There are so many character flaws in me. So many character flaws. The, the, the more you walk with the Lord and the closer you get with the Lord, the more you start to see these things. They're very uncomfortable, but I'm going to submit to you they are blessings, aren't they? And that's the way we have to see these. And this is what Calvin is saying about this passage. It's like, look at all of these blessings. that The Lord just... It's like He can't help Himself. He just has to continually share all of these blessings on his people, on his children. His promises are certain, even if they should be delayed. In the meantime, God is continually pouring blessings on us. 
He continues, verses 17, 18, and 19. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? How is it that all the nations, before we pass that up, how is it that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed in Abraham? It's because of Jesus. Yeah. Abraham's going to have a son who has a son who has a son who has a son who eventually um, is Jesus. Jesus is in the family line. Have you put this together? That for all eternity when we're in heaven and everybody's praising Jesus? Do you know Abraham is going to be able to look at Jesus, ask for his humanity, and say, that's my boy. How amazing. That's what's going on here. Because of that fact, how can the Lord withhold what he's about to do? Being that the Lord has brought Abraham so intimately in. He, he is so in. It's like, Abraham, you are so in that I can't avoid telling you what I am about to do. Then verse 19, for I've chosen you. You see that? For I've chosen him. Some of your translations will say, for I've known him. In the ESV, there's a footnote. And if you look down at the margin, you see the Hebrew, it says Hebrew known or something to that effect. What's going on there is what we're really meant to see. Of course, God has chosen Abraham. But what we're meant to see here is that he's been chosen in love. Abraham is being brought into such an intimate relationship that God, as I said last week, God is pleased to call Abraham a friend. And that's why we chose James 2.23 as a scripture memory verse. For God, for Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, and therefore Abraham was called a friend of God. But Jesus does the same thing. Keep your place in, in Genesis. We're not done with Genesis yet, but I want to show you something in John. John 15. Very famous passage there. Verse 12, John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Then a famous verse, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Hold on to that word, friends. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now look what Jesus is doing in verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. What a tremendous thing this is. What is Jesus doing? He's doing the same thing he did to Abraham. It's the Son of God doing this to Abraham. And he's saying, Abraham, you are so in that I'm not going to withhold this, this thing that I'm about to do from you because you are so in. And what is Jesus saying to his disciples there? You're so in. You're, not, you're, not, you're more than servants. Yes, you serve me, but you're much more than that. You're much more than that. You're my friends. 
And that same, same thing is communicated to each one of us. What a friend we have in Jesus. It's one of the great old hymns. Now back to Genesis 18. Verse 19. Really, verse 19 gives us two reasons for the Lord showing us really why He's showing these things to Abraham. One is that He's chosen him. But two, notice what it says afterwards. That He may command His children and His household after Him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what He has promised him. Now, what is all of that about? Well, there's two reasons in verse 19 why the Lord is sharing these things with Abraham. One is because He's because of the friendship, because he's so far in. Two is that he may publish this stuff, that he may announce this stuff, that he may teach this stuff, that he may proclaim this stuff to his children. And, of course, that his children's children may do the same and his children's children may do the same. And actually, what I am doing right now actually is following in the footsteps of this. What am I doing right now? proclaiming these things. We can each take a part in proclaiming these things, whether we're doing it from a pulpit or we're doing it at the water cooler. There's two reasons here that the Lord has given these things, He's showing Abraham what He's about to do. One, because Abraham's in. Two, so that Abraham may communicate this to his children. Okay, what is it that the Lord is about to do? Verse 20, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Again, anthropomorphic language. Notice the word outcry. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. We have seen this language before. We saw it all the way back in Genesis 4. When Cain kills Abel, uh, when Cain kills Abel and the Lord comes to Cain and calls him for it, he says that Abel's blood is what? It's crying out. What is that about? What that's about is there's been, an, there's been a breach in, in, in God's justice. There's been a breach. There's, there's been an, an injustice has taken place. And now God's justice is crying out. It's anthropomorphic language. Uh, justice is now crying out. Every time a sin is committed, God's justice is violated, and God's justice cries out. C can you imagine the crying that the Lord hears on a daily basis? Not just every time we sin, but uh, every time... you imagine that? There's seven billion of us running around on the planet. At any given moment of the day. Well, here we're told that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. Their sin is very grave. The Lord says, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Anthropomorphic language. Does the Lord need to investigate this? Absolutely not. Is it like the Lord sits in heaven and intel's gathered and his intel come and report to him? Now he's going to go down and see if that's really... No, come on. What's he doing? He's pulling Abraham in. You imagine Abraham's face? Abraham knows this gang. 
He knows this bunch. How does Abraham know this bunch? He rescued them from Kadar Lahomer, and he dragged them all back down to their home. He knows this bunch. Down there where Lot lives, I don't know how he can live down there. Yeah, I know, Abraham. How does, it, how, does that, how does that nephew of yours live down there? I don't know how he lives down there. And look what he's doing to his daughters. I, I, you can imagine the conversation that goes on in the tent. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. Their sin is grave. You can almost see Abraham, boy. Uh, Abraham, he knows what's up. In verse 22, the men turn from there and they, they, they go towards Sodom. The angels do. Abraham's now alone with the Lord. And in verse 23, we're told that Abraham drew near. That's what God's been doing all along is drawing, drawing Abraham near. And Abraham, notice Abraham puts it together. God hasn't said that he's going to destroy the city, but well, notice what Abraham says in verse 23. He says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham knows the place. He knows what that place is like. And if the Lord's, if the Lord's headed down there, he knows this isn't good. He knows that it's going to get swept away. And notice how the Lord, or how Abraham intercedes with the Lord in verses 24 and following. He says, suppose there are 50 within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? You know, where's 50 come from? And how many people were living there at the time? Certainly more than 50. Probably quite a bunch. Uh, wouldn't have been as populated as the cities are populated today. But Abraham, maybe at the start, thought, boy, surely there's 50. Uh, but then he, he rethinks that. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous, the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And the Lord says, okay, if there's 50 in the city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham says, and, and really, um, if, you, if, you wanted to, if you wanted to preach a sermon on salesmanship from the Bible, I think this is a good place to do it because... I mean, Abraham's putting his best foot forward. Notice what he does. I'm always amazed. Notice what he does here in verse 27. He says, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, I am but dust. In verse 28, suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. What a sales pitch. Because he's not focusing on 45 here. He didn't say 45. He just said, hey, if there's only five of them, if there's only five of them missing, you see what he's doing there? A a Abraham probably was quite a salesman. Of course, he had a large household. He's putting his best foot forward here. The Lord, the Lord says, okay, for 40. Now, the Lord says 45. Okay, for 45. Okay, for 45, I will not destroy it. Again, he speaks to him. He says, okay, how about 40? He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said... Oh, let, don't, don't be angry. I, I'll, I'll speak. Suppose 30 are found. He said, okay, I will not do it if I find 30. And he said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10. He says, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Leopold in his commentary suggests that the reason that, that Abraham stops there is because if he would have gone any further, 
it might have looked like all Abraham is doing is pleading for Lot. I think there's a lot of truth to that. He stops at 10. There's a lesson in that actually too. I mean, we should never, as we pray for the lost condition of souls, we should never only pray for our loved ones. We really need to pray for everyone. We really need, we really need to be praying for the lost. We pray for our loved ones for sure, but our prayers must go beyond that or, or they're, they're quite selfish prayers. Abraham is not being selfish here. He stops at 10. But you can't help but to see some anxiety in Abraham's heart because I don't think he's really confident that they're going to come up with 10. Um, so what, what, do we, what do we get from this? God's promises are certain, even if they should be delayed. God continually pours out His blessings on His people. Thirdly, I, I would say that judgment is part of the gospel. Judgment is delayed. You see, God's promises are certain even if they're delayed. Judgment is one of those promises. Jonathan Edwards used to teach that if you haven't shared judgment, you haven't shared the gospel. And along the way, the church got it in its head that these fire and brimstone sermons are out of vogue. And, it, you know, I was thinking about this. When I come back, I'm going to have to preach on Genesis 19. That's not a real nice passage to come back to. Um, I, I'm going to do it um, unless I think of a way to get out of it while we're away and say, well, let's do something else first. And I'm just teasing there. I don't mind doing it. But you, those of you who have read Genesis 19 have absorbed some of it, know what I'm talking about. It's, it's, it, Genesis 19 is not a pretty picture, is it? Fallen humanity is not a pretty picture. And the Bible doesn't, it doesn't beat around the bush about that, you know? This is not a pretty picture. Judgment is certain, even if it's delayed, it's certain. It's certain. And Jonathan Edwards' words, they ring so true. As the church has pulled back from sharing judgment, oh, we can't share judgment. If we share judgment, we're going to scare everybody away. So there's no judgment. Okay, well, people were smart enough. In case, okay, there's no judgment. Well, if there's, there's not going to be any judgment, then what do I need a Savior for? Now nobody really believes they need Jesus. And who's the, who's the fault for it? It's the church. You'll hear, the, you'll hear people in the church want to blame all of the people out there for everything that's going on. Hey, 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 not so fast. Have you told your loved ones about the judgment? Well, I don't want to run them away. Hey, then shut up. You're as much a part of it as anything. We have, it's uncomfortable. I don't like doing it. Genesis 19 isn't going to be necessarily fun for me to preach. What's, what's God going to do in Genesis 19? He's going to destroy the place. That's, see, if we're apart from Christ, that's all we've got to look forward to. And we have to tell people that. You don't have a bright future in front of you at all. To the contrary, you've got the opposite. We need Jesus more than we need the air that we breathe. And that's the point that Jonathan Edwards was making. 
And we either believe this or we don't believe this. Let's quit saying, oh, I don't want to offend. It's going to offend people. We don't have to be offensive with it. You know, that whole idea, you know, listen, the the whole idea of someone standing up and and preaching fire and brimstone with a little grin on their face like they're going to delight in it, that that, that should never take place. Genesis 19 needs to be preached with tears in your eyes. It needs to be done in the spirit that Abraham's doing. What's Abraham doing? He's on his face here pleading, don't destroy the city. Don't destroy it. Don't destroy it. That needs to be our attitude about it. But the fact is, it's going to happen. It's as certain. It's one of the gospel promises. It's going to happen. It has to be part of our Bible presentations. What effect should all this have on us? (laughs) Intercession. That's clearly the message in Genesis 18, isn't it? Intercession. I think when, I know that when I relax on interceding for the lost, I know that one thing has happened in my heart every time. To the measure that I relax on interceding for the lost, to that same measure, I am am beginning to not believe judgment is coming. That's what's happening in my own heart. When I relax on interceding for the lost, I am at the same time failing to believe that judgment is coming. Does that make sense? That has to be repented of. We discover that about our hearts. What do we do? We repent. We ask the Lord to to soften our hearts and begin praying. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this great chapter that we have, Father. We thank you, Father, for this great book that we have. We thank you, Father, that you would call us and bring us in as friends, that you would show us what you're going to do. And you have shown us what you're going to do. All of your promises are certain. They're all certain. They're certainly to come to pass. You bless us constantly. And Father, we understand that, Father, judgment is part of the gospel, and and we certainly need to publish that judgment. And we see that the effect that this should have on us, Father, is intercession. It should call us, it it should, should lead us to pray. Father, meet us in our unbelief. Meet us in our cold and and stony and thorny hearts, Father. And Father, change us. Change us, O Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.